Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's have a word of prayer and go to the Lord to ask his guidance on our time of study. Father, you've revealed your word to us that we might know who you are, know who we are, know how to think as you think that we may live as you would have us to live. Father, your word is sufficient for all things, meaning that it gives us a framework for not just understanding the so-called spiritual things of life, but also uh, all of the other areas of of life. It is within your word that you uh, address issues related to the day-to-day details of life issues related to marriage, family, uh, issues related to finances, economics, issues related to the uh, day-to-day details that we face and uh, deal with, struggle with on a regular basis. But it's to your word that we can go to find guidance, direction, and and a way to think correctly about your creation. Now, fathers, we study your word this morning, and we continue to look at this Uh, the episode of the uh, Assyrian assault against Judah that we might uh, come to think a little more uh, profoundly about the lessons we learned from this. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it seems like every week something new happens on the news and something more interesting than the week before comes up. Uh, The old Chinese proverb, may you live in interesting times, or the old Chinese curse, rather, uh, certainly seems to be true, and we've been experiencing this for, for, for quite a while. And this last week wasn't any different. We started off the week continuing with the crisis and the argument uh, <clears throat> going on about uh, the whether or not this uh, Islamic mosque, this uh, so-called community center, ought to be built uh, within a couple of blocks of the uh, where the World Trade Center had stood. And then we uh, saw the week uh, develop into this controversy uh, generated by this pastor in Florida over burning the Quran, or many Qurans, having a Quran burning, and then several others around the country deciding they, they wanted to jump on that bandwagon. And then, of course, the week ended yesterday with a remembrance of what occurred when our nation was uh, attacked so violently some nine years ago on the morning of September 11th by Islamic jihadists. And as we spent time yesterday, and I hope some of you or most of you spent some time watching some of the news shows, some of the coverage that was played again 
from that time nine years ago because we need to be reminded of what went on, why we are still in Afghanistan, why our military forces are committed overseas, why we are having this huge debate over uh, whether or not a mosque ought to be built two blocks from the World Trade Center. It gives us the opportunity to reflect on what we've learned or what we haven't learned in the last uh, nine years. I remember uh, talking about this as a, from the pulpit nine years ago, saying that within ten years we would forget its significance, we would be back to the same basic problems, the same basic approaches to international uh, relations, etc., that that had characterized this country for the last 10, 15, 20 years, that the lessons that we should have learned would have been forgotten. And I think that pretty much that's true, that many, many people in this nation have just forgotten uh, what happened, and they don't, they still don't understand why it happened. And this really does reflect, we ought to ask that question, why is it that as a culture, as a nation, uh, not just the United States, but also Western civilization, why is it that we can't come to grips with what happened on 9-11? Why is it that we can't really come to a an understanding of why we were attacked and what the real issues were in that attack that occurred nine years ago? And there are voices that clearly teach the truth and have written about this and explained the truth, but yet there is this enormous cultural resistance to accepting that truth and to facing the threat of whether you want to call it Islamicism or radical uh, Islamic uh, uh, terrorism or however you want to phrase it, but we have this resistance to properly identifying the problem. And if you can't properly identify a problem, whatever it is in life, if you haven't properly identified it, you can never properly solve it. If you haven't identified it, if you're off target one degree to 180 degrees, your solution will be off target one degree or 180 degrees. And to the degree that your solution is off target, you will never experience the uh, the benefit of your solution. In fact, you might even adopt solutions that are uh, completely erroneous and just generate more and more uh, problems. What we continue to demonstrate in our modern American culture is that we uh, don't learn anything from history. And the proverb is that if what we if we don't learn from history, we are doomed to repeat history. And we will continue, and we do continue to make the same errors that <clears throat> have been made uh, for for many years in this nation, because ultimately the problem comes down to a spiritual issue. And we live in a culture that is the poster child of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And as a culture, as Western civilization has moved uh, progressively uh, away from a biblical worldview to a totally secular worldview and a postmodern worldview and a whatever your worldview is goes kind of way of thinking, the further we get away from the truth, the more we are blind to the truth and the less able we are to realistically assess uh, what the issues are and what the problems are. Now, <clears throat> in our study in Second Kings, we come to a set of, of circumstances 
uh, in the history of the southern kingdom of Judah under uh, King Hezekiah that has a lot of parallels with our current situation as a nation, and we can learn a lot of principles from it. I'm titling this message, Hezekiah's Response to International Intimidation, to bring out the parallels in Second Kings 19, probably the first six verses. And I put up a picture here uh, that I took in the, uh, the old city of David, pointing to the entry to, the, to Hezekiah's tunnel, uh, which you can see in, in the picture, because that was part of his response. And we'll come back to uh, look at that as it applies uh, as we go through the lesson. But as we look at any issue in life, and especially issues related to something as momentous as these events that we've seen over the past 10 years and even further back because you have the uh, various terrorist activities that took place with the uh, attack on the USS Cole and other uh, terrorist attacks that happened before that, going back to the bombing of the World Trade Center in the early 90s and other things that were consistently ignored. I mean, it's not just a problem with a political party or a political persuasion, because what you see is both political parties are guilty of the same problem, is they can't honestly and evaluate reality and therefore come up with the right solution. And so uh, the solutions are always going to be wrong because they can't accept and identify the problem because to identify the problem means that you have to be able to identify it in terms of spiritual truth. And when we're operating on a purely secular worldview model, we can't honestly have a debate in the culture about a spiritual issue. And as long as we can't have a debate and honestly discuss the spiritual issue as it relates to day-to-day -to -day, day -day issues, we'll constantly make the same mistakes. I want to start with a kind of a chart I want you to think about uh, a lot, that whenever we come to these issues that, that often generate a lot of debate and a lot of antagonism that relate to political issues, uh, we start with, the, with an argument over this political debate, over this particular issue. Should we build a mosque or not? Should this guy burn Korans or not? Uh, should we have national health care or not? Whatever these issues are, it's interesting that how people answer those questions, uh, they gen generally, no matter how disconnected those particular issues are, the way people answer them, they, all, they tend to fall out into the same groups, no matter how uh, disparate the, the issue may be, whether it's health care, whether it's the economy and bailouts, or whether it uh, uh, has to do with how to handle uh, uh, militant Islam, whatever it is, when, when, you, when you ask the question and get the answers, the same people tend to line up on the same side of the issue for every issue. Now, why is that? It has to do with underlying ways of thinking, subterranean things that, that aren't on the surface. And we start off with the debate over, well, should we do this or should we do this? What should our policy be? What should our national policy be? The same thing happens in terms of individual action. Should we do this or should we do that? Should we buy a house or not buy a house? Should you homeschool or not homeschool? Should you do whatever, whatever it is, fit in your current problem into that scenario? And you have to realize that at some level, you ask the, a more basic question, and that is, is it right or wrong? I want to do this. Well, is that the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do? Is it right or wrong to uh, build that mosque uh, two blocks from ground zero? Is it right or wrong for this pastor in Florida to burn Korans? Is it right or wrong to have 
these huge trillion dollar bailouts of uh, uh, of businesses when when uh, there's absolutely no accountability as to how the uh, how the money gets spent actually that's two different issues but you always come to this question where you ask is it right or is it wrong or you say i'm for this somebody says you're wrong well you've immediately brought in a value system now what's your value system what informs your value system and see we rarely get into the debate at this level and yet this is this isn't even where the debate should be this is why we need to think more deeply about issues. The, the real problem isn't in the upper box. It's not even in this box. It goes further. And that is, how are we going to determine what is right or wrong? I mean, if you get in a discussion with a family member or friend or somebody at work about what's going on, uh, about the burning of the Korans or the mosque in uh, New York or the bailouts, the economy, whatever it is, and you say, well, I don't think that's the right way to do it, you have brought into the discussion some sort of value system, and that also brings to question, how do you know that this is right or that's right? How do you know what right or wrong? Where do you get this idea that this action is right or that action is right? And that's this question the, uh, in philosophy they call it epistemology, which basically means the study of knowledge, or how do you know what you know? If you've made a value judgment that this is right and that's wrong, then how do you know what's right or wrong? Where do you get those ideas? And for Christians, that comes from the Bible. And when we talk about the sufficiency of the word, that means that we believe that the Bible gives us a framework to think about everything that we face in life. You can't go to anything in life and say, you know, the Bible doesn't really address that. You just are completely on your own with no divine guidance whatsoever as to how to think about that particular subject. Now, people want to do that all the time. Mostly that's because we're arrogant and we want to do it our way and we just don't want God to talk to us about our opinions about you know, music or money or whatever it may be. But if we're honest, we have to recognize that the biblical viewpoint is that the Bible gives us the way to think about every issue in life. Now, but that presupposes something else, and this is where the real debate is, and that comes down to this issue of metaphysics, as the philosophers talk about it, and we would just say the existence of God. Not only is there a God, but what is this God like? If you have a God that is Allah, that is the God of Islam, then that is going to change how you know certain things. And what is, and then that's going to, again, change your value system as what is right or what is wrong, and that's going to affect how you think about uh, political national issues and individual choices. If your view is that there is no God and that everything's just chance and you're just a, uh, an accident in time uh, because lightning happened to hit a blob of slime and uh, several million years later you developed, then you're just an accident. There's no more meaning in life than that. Then you can't really know anything for sure, which is where we are in the whole postmodern sort of way of looking at things as you have your truth and I have my truth. And as long as it works for us uh, at the time, it may not work for you tomorrow or me tomorrow, but today it's fine, um, then then we're okay. So it affects our, our way of knowing knowing truth, and it becomes very... Uh, very uh, mutable, very changeable. It just—it's it's fluid. It's like trying to nail macrobiotic jello to the ceiling. Uh, 
you, you just can't do it. And so just think of what kind of courage and convictions you have if your basic, if your basis for knowledge is so ephemeral, is so fluid, that one day it's right and the next day it could be wrong. Who knows? I don't know. I have no idea what's right or wrong. If your basic epistemology is that uncertain, then you can't have confidence or certainty or confidence in anything that you do. And how is that going to affect you if you're on the battlefield? You're left in a position of, well, you know, I don't really want to do this or do that because it may upset the other person. It wipes out courage, whether you're talking about spiritual courage or moral courage or, or battle courage. If there's no conviction of truth, of right or wrong, then you can't have real convictions and certainty and confidence when you're in a high-pressure uh, high situation. So how you know things, if you're a you know, secular um, relativist, that affects your ethics. Anything can be right. Anything could be wrong. And that, in turn, is going to affect how you think about national policy, national decisions, and your own personal morality and your own personal decisions, and how you handle problems that come up in marriage and child-rearing and how you handle and uh, spend your money balance your checkbook, things like that. So it's all very practical, even though it sounds like, oh, we're getting into philosophy 101 here, and this is too heavy. I just came to church to get three principles in a poem. Well, we've got to think more than that. I mean, this is where the real issues lie, and this is why we have, we have what they call culture wars in, in our society and why we see more and more of a, of a polarization taking place within our culture over more and more issues is because uh, the disagreement that occurs at that upper level of the political national debate or even individual decisions is grounded in uh, vastly different uh, beliefs about the ultimate nature of reality and God. And if you're consistent, and a lot of people are, you know, people are more consistent than uh, then we give them credit for. They may not have thought it through consciously, but if they don't believe a God, they're living as if there is no God. And if people do believe there is a God to whom they will be held accountable at some time in the future for their decisions and actions, then they're going to live accordingly, uh, unless, of course, they're just in disobedience to that God. So this is how uh, we need to look at things, and it also gives us a little bit of a grid, I think, for helping to understand why... You have certain people take certain actions in the Scripture and why they don't. And this is where we come to learn application of the Scripture and to think a little more uh, deeply about what's going on instead of just looking at Hezekiah and saying, well, this is a nice lesson on prayer, and it's a great lesson on prayer, and it's very important to think about in terms of prayer, but that's only at the surface. We need to think a little more deeply about this as to, or we won't really understand the lessons for prayer that come out of these uh, next couple of chapters. So the issues really goes down to these lower two uh, levels here. And in terms of this chart, what happens is that practically as we face pressures in life and we face adversity and we face hostility, we face uh, debates over uh, national debates, things of that nature, that those pressures should drive us further down to the lower level, and that's where the discussion, that's where the thinking needs to take place because the, that bottom area, that bottom box, determines what happens in the top box. 
And what we have is a culture that refuses to think much lower than the top box. It never wants, let's ignore those bottom two boxes completely. Let's not talk about that because that's, 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 uh, that's your freedom of religion. You can believe anything you want to. It really doesn't matter. See, even that statement reflects a view of God and a view of knowledge that is completely antithetical to the view of knowledge and the view of God that the founders had when they wrote the First Amendment. And so you, by, by thinking differently about God, you think differently about the First Amendment. Well, that ought to explain why we have some conflicts today. So there's, that's the logical sequence, which is what I've got on the left, takes us from first you start with God, and then you think through how you know right or wrong in terms of the Bible, how you know things, then ethics, or, and then uh, application in terms of political, national decisions or policies and individual, uh, individual actions. That's the area of application. See, what happens in a lot of churches today is you come in and they give you three little principles, how to have a happy marriage. Oh, everybody's good, and they go home, they have their three little principles that they don't work on all week. But they think they had a great, great experience with the Bible on Sunday morning. And five verses were quoted and kind of, uh, you know, taped to the message to make it look like it was biblical, but it had nothing to do with getting into the surface, uh, surface of the text. But so to to get to a point of application, you have to dig. Uh, what I'm saying here is we've got to dig more deeply and talk about these lower level issues of God and how we know uh, know the truth. Now there's some interesting parallels as we get into um, looking at Hezekiah here. Some parallels uh, that Hezekiah has with today. First of all, Hezekiah faced an enemy which sought to destroy their nation. Theirs was a co- different kind of enemy, though. It was a national in an in- enemy or an empire, the Assyrian Empire, that had as its stated goal uh, world dominance. And it was m- wiping out all of the t- uh, nations and uh, city-states that existed in the, in the Middle East, and it was uh, wiping them out, and it would come in and then and and take the people the indigenous population and then it would would um, uh, deport them and it would uh, move them all over the uh, all over the the empire and scatter them so that it would completely wipe out and destroy that culture and that ethnic group and this happened to to a number of different uh groups throughout Syria coming down into what we now call Lebanon Phoenicia Tyre and on down into Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel had been wiped out and defeated, and they had been deported and uh, scattered all over the Assyrian Empire uh, about 20 years prior to the events in uh, first, uh, Second Kings chapter 19. So Hezekiah faces an enemy which sought to destroy the nation. Uh, the enemy used a religious framework to attempt to intimidate the Jews. That was the whole argument we studied there with Rob Shaka. You can't trust this God. We've defeated all these other nations. Their gods didn't help them. Your God won't help you. So they're attempting to intimidate Hezekiah and the Jews in Jerusalem on the basis of this religious argument. Uh, third, we've seen that Judah as a nation was not the aggressor, and they weren't responsible for the attack, although I'm sure you had liberals in, uh, in, in uh, Judah and in Jerusalem who were saying, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, if you just paid, uh, you know, just paid the tax and just paid the, the uh, tribute money to Sennacherib, this never would have happened. It's all your fault that we're being attacked. Now, that's the same kind of backward logic that we get from people who try to blame actions on the part of the U.S. for what happened on 9-11. And then fourth, 
Assyria on the basis of their pagan worldview and their 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 idols or gods and goddesses uh, desired world domination and they sought to dominate the gods of the other nations and then to impose their culture on the others. Now, the parallel with today is this. We are faced with an enemy which seeks to destroy our nation, not just our nation, but seeks to destroy uh, every every nation and bring everything under the banner of Islam because that is what is written within their uh, within the Quran. The objective of Islam is world domination. It is not simply a religious system like Buddhism or Hinduism, uh, Christianity or Judaism. It is a system of law, Sharia law, that is to impose itself upon. Uh, the entire world. And you can't separate Sharia law from Islam and the ultimate goal of world domination. And it is to be carried out by peaceful means if necessary, but if not, then just pull out the swords and lop their heads off and impose it physically and violently. That is how Islam spread from the very beginning under, under Muhammad for the first century and a half. They conquered about half the Middle East, North Africa, and we're moving into uh, into Spain, and all and that is how Islam spread. Islam didn't spread by somebody come, going to another person and say, "Hey, did you know that God has a perfect and wonderful plan for your life? Let me tell you about Muhammad." Uh, no, they pulled out a sword and lopped the other guy's head off and said, "Okay, now we have peace." So it's a religion of peace, and that's how they. Reach peace, but we don't want to be honest about that. That's what their that's what their book says. Uh, secondly, the enemy used a, uses a religious rationale to intimidate the West, and so what we see is in the example of this uh, pastor down in Florida. And I don't agree with what he was doing. I don't think it was uh, wise or had anything to do with Christianity. I think it was very foolish. But he has a freedom under the First Amendment to be foolish and stupid, and we need to give him that right and go fight and die for that right. That's what the First Amendment means, is we will go fight and die for this guy's right to be stupid. Now, we live in a world today that doesn't like that. They want to say, you know, we need to stop him from being stupid because that may hurt the rest of us. Can we apply that to some people we've elected? I don't know. Maybe that's another subject. People have freedom, and freedom to do the right thing means that they also have the equal amount of freedom to do the wrong thing. Now, what happens is this guy wants to burn a Quran, and so the Muslims are going to riot. Well, guess what? They're always rioting. They're all, they are always looking for an excuse in order to, to, to throw some kind of tantrum uh, against the West, and they'll use anything. There, there, there are cases where uh, there have been logos of companies. Nike was one. Uh, uh, McDonald's was another one where they had a logo on one of their uh, burgers or, or, uh, or with Nike on one of their shoes that the Muslims claimed if you looked at it upside down and backwards, it looked like the name of Allah. And so then they riot. And so the West, because they've lost any conviction of courage, what do these companies do? They immediately kowtow and, and start groveling on the ground to the Muslims because they're afraid something's going to happen to them. They give in to the intimidation because they have no, 
no courage and conviction, no moral courage or spiritual courage, because what's happened? Go back, think back to that chart. Once you get rid of the idea of God, and once you get rid of the idea of absolutes, then you don't have a foundation for uh, thinking in terms of convictions and certainty, and you lose your basis for courage, and you just become uh, become a wimp, totally susceptible to intimidation. That's why they keep doing it. You know, they didn't do it for many years because the West stood up to them. And but now the West has has lost its basis for moral courage, and spiritual courage and conviction, and so they they want to. Uh, they just want to yield. See, that's what happened to Hezekiah previously to this. When he got into carnality, forgot about his devotion to the Lord, and started paying tribute to Sennacherib all the time. Then one day he woke up and he stopped, and now he's got a problem. The problem's his own creation. The problem isn't that he stopped paying tribute, and that brought Sennacherib to his front door. The problem is that whenever we get into carnality and we start making bad decisions from that position of strength, then, then when we decide all of a sudden we need to straighten things out, well, we have to deal with the consequences of our bad decisions, and sometimes we, we have to go fight a battle, and that's what happened. Third thing is the U.S. and the West are not the aggressor. No matter what mistakes we may have made, no matter how we may have tried to manipulate foreign, uh, uh, foreign actions or manipulate trade uh, uh, treaties or anything like that, it, it, we're not the aggressor. There's nothing that anybody in Western civilization did that justifies the kind of assault that occurred on 9-11. Uh, two wrongs don't make a right. I, my mother drilled that into me time and time again. The more sophisticated version is a wrong thing done in a right way or a, a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. I mean, you just can't use a, you, you just can't justify it uh, just because you have two wrongs. So um, fourth principle here, a parallel, is Islam's a pagan worldview, just like the pagan worldview that dominated Assyria. And it has, a, it includes a religious and legal system. Now, m- many worldviews don't overtly have a legal system, but it's it's covert. It is, it's implied within their their way of thinking. Uh, with Islam, it's a it's it's overt. They have their legal system of Sharia law. They seek to dominate, uh, seek to dominate the West. And so we have these parallels. Now, as Hezekiah faces this threat, we can learn how. The, what the right solution is and what the wrong solution. Now, the wrong sol- the, these are juxtaposed to each other in a passage uh, I read last week as scripture reading when Jim Myers was here. We find it in Jeremiah chapter 17, uh, <clears throat> Jeremiah 17, verse, uh, verses 4 and 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. That's the fundamental problem, is when man puts his confidence, that's the word trust there is the Hebrew word we've studied before in this section, batak, which means to put your reliance or dependence upon something as your ultimate source of strength and security. And so when man puts his ultimate source of strength and security in man, then it's unstable, it's going to fall apart. And that's what all these other systems do, is they ultimately put their trust in man and look to the man's resources, his intelligence, his uh, technology, his military skill, his uh, economic strength, whatever it is, to be the real solution. Or having the right party in power in Congress is the right solution. 
These are secondary. Uh, they're not the ultimate solution. The real solution is that we have to put our trust in God. So I want you to take a minute here and just look at these, these verses. Look at verse 5. Thus says the Lord. This isn't Isaiah's opinion, I mean Jeremiah's opinion. This isn't my opinion. This is the Lord's opinion. God is speaking to us, telling us this. He said, cursed is the man who trusts in man. So the first thing we see emphasized here is volition. Man can trust in man or in God. So volition is emphasized here that man has to make a decision as to what his ultimate truth is. That's that lower box that I labeled metaphysics, the existence of God. Do we have Allah in that box? Do we have uh, eternal matter in that box? Or do we have uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in that box? What you put in that box determines everything that comes from it. So the Lord says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. Flesh is uh, mutable. Flesh is uh, deteriorates. It, 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 it gets wiped out. It's independable. So uh, makes flesh his strength whose heart departs from the Lord. Now, that expands the idea here. The word heart here incorporates his thinking. So it's not just that for a moment he trusts in man rather than God, but his heart, his system of thought, departs from God. He gets totally into human viewpoint as opposed to divine viewpoint. He gets into some form of paganism, some form of humanism, some form of human viewpoint uh, philosophy or methodology that is contradictory to the Scripture. Now, that has to do with the next level, that level of epistemology. So he's going to trust in man rather than God. That's, he's going to put man in the lower box. And then he's going to put, for knowledge, he puts... Uh, his whole heart, his whole system departs from the Lord, and he's going to generate his own way of thinking. Now, in the next verse, we see the consequence of that. Verse, verse 6, For he shall be like a shrub in the desert, and shall not see good, see when good comes. Okay, shrub in the desert picks up a metaphor here. A shrub in the desert doesn't have much of a resource. There's very little water out there. Its growth is limited. Its uh, fruitfulness or productivity is limited. So if, if you, you're not trusting in God, you're trusting in man, you're going to have limited productivity. This is an economic concept. So all of a sudden, God is not only saying here that uh, that if your, your thinking departs from God, uh, not only is it, is, is it, does it affect your whole way of thinking, your heart departs from the Lord, but it affects you in, in your pocketbook. It affects economics. It affects productivity. It's a, but, and, and also in the next verse it says, and shall not see good when, see when good comes. Seeing is a term related to knowledge. And so here you have that epistemology. You, when you change your way of thinking, you're not able to see. There's no perception of good. Good is right or wrong. Good is takes us up into those upper two boxes there when you decide, well, what's our policy? Are we going to do this or are we going to do that? And you have to decide, well, what's right or wrong, what's good and what's bad. And so what, what the Scriptures affirm here is that if you're not trusting in God, then this 
changes the way, your, your thought system in terms of epistemology. It affects your ability to discern and make good decisions, which means you're unable to identify reality uh, as it is. So you shall not see good, see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness. This is the consequence of human viewpoint thinking. It is that there is no productivity here. There is no fertility here. There's no uh, economic prosperity. There's no uh, uh, advance in the stock market. You're going to go from 10,000 to 2,000. Uh, everything's going to dry up, and, and that is going to then create even further uh, further cyclical consequences. You shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. It leads to destruction. There's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. Solomon writes in the Proverbs. In contrast, we have the statement in verse 7, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and in whose hope is the Lord. Now, this is interesting to see this parallel between trust and hope. We often think that hope is some sort of wishful optimism. I hope it doesn't rain when we have our picnic. That would really mess our plans up. We don't know. We're not confident. We don't know which way it's going to go. It's just wishful optimism. But hope in the scripture is a confident expectation. It is parallel or synonymous to the word batak for trust. Because we trust and rely and we're dependent upon the Lord, we can then have confidence. And when you have confidence, then you can make decisions from a position of strength. And when the enemy starts sending out his propaganda team and the enemy starts trying to intimidate you with all kinds of temper tantrums, and everything, you're going to say, now, just quit acting like that, and you're going to stop him. You're not going to start cowering. You're not going to have generals running around and saying, oh, we've got to tell this guy to quit burning the Koran because they may kill some of our soldiers. Well, don't we have some technology that kills more of them than us? I mean, we've got, to, we've got to quit letting the enemy intimidate us, and the reason they do is because we've abdicated our position of strength in terms of who God is and in terms of the Scripture as a culture. Now, that's kind of what was going on with Israel before Hezekiah finally turned around and put his focus back on God. Now, the verse 7 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, and his hope is the Lord, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters. The result of putting our focus on the Lord is that there is prosperity, there is fertility, there is growth, there is uh, the, the picture here is something that is very, very attractive and, and uh, uh, a picture of expansiveness. The tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes. See, when you, when you get into pressure situations, you don't respond out of fear. Oh, my gosh, you know, they may do something. No, you have confidence because you know what truth is, because you understand the reality in the world. So he spreads out its roots by the river, will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought. So that when things do go bad, because there are these natural cycles, there's warming cycles and cooling cycles, warming cycles. It's not global warming man-made. It's just normal cycles. So when some things go in the other direction, we don't start cowering, fearful of our shadow, saying, oh, we've got to quit doing everything we're doing because we're causing this. You have to function on the absolutes of divine viewpoint. So you're not going to fear and you're not going to be anxious, and you won't cease from yielding fruit. God is still going to produce 
fruitfulness, productivity in the culture. See, what we forget is when we live in a secular society, you've, te- you've made everything the result of man's decisions. When you make everything the result of man's decisions and you take God out of the picture, you can't properly interpret anything because what Scripture says is that the truth is that the ultimate causative factor of everything in life is God, not you. Now, you can make bad decisions, and they're going to bring certain consequences, but we're talking in a broad uh, broad scheme of things that if you're, if a nation is dependent upon God, then God is going to protect them, and God is going to watch over them. That's the, that's the message to, uh, to Israel. Now, this brings another aspect to this. As uh, I can see, I'm not going to get in the main part of the message. This was all the introduction. But you'll have to come back next time to get the main, the main body. See, we, we deal in a unified universe. I've got two boxes here. Material truth is some things that we deal with on a physical, material level every day. And the spiritual truth has to do with the realities that, do, that are not perceived by empiricism or rationalism. And I put it in a red box because biblically these are unified. Okay? So we have a spiritual truth that God is our refuge and our strength. Now Hezekiah comes along and says, I'm trusting in God, but the enemy's out there, so I'm not going to give him any aid and, um, and water. So we're going to dam up the Gihon Springs outside the wall, and we're going to dig a tunnel inside the wall, uh, because, and we're going to provide water for us and deny water to the enemy. But by doing that, he's not denying that he's trusting God as the ultimate hope and the ultimate deliverer. So we, have, we function in both of these areas. What's your ultimate trust in God? Sort of like praise God and keep the powder dry. You know, you have both, area, both spheres are, are true. So that in a spiritual realm, we know that God supplies our every need, but that doesn't justify us to go out and just spend uh, frivolously. We still have to budget our money and balance the checkbook. You can pray all day long that God will get your grass cut, but until you pay the guy to cut it or you do it yourself, it isn't going to get cut. You have both of these are, are, are true. The ultimate reality is God controls everything. God controls history. But the material truth is that that doesn't justify us in just going back home and simply and only praying. We need to be involved in the process in this nation because the government is of the people, by the people, and for the people. That's our responsibility. Now, if you're living in the Roman Empire or you're living in uh, Soviet uh, or, or you're living in modern Russia or you're living in uh, some Islamic country, then, then that's not an option. But it is part of the option here. Number one, you trust in God. He is the ultimate solution. But we also have to be involved in the process of who we vote for and who we put into public office. Now, we come to Hezekiah, and we realize this guy was just a a, a giant, a spiritual giant in in the Old Testament. Look at the praise that he gets. 2 Chronicles 31.20, the Holy Spirit says, Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good, right, and true before the Lord his God. That's not said of anybody else except David. Verse uh, 21, every work which he began in the service of the house of God, in law and in commandment, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. And then 2 Kings 18.5 said, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. The only king in the history of Israel, United Kingdom, 
southern kingdom, northern kingdom, that was a more of a spiritual giant than Hezekiah was David. Does that mean that Hezekiah didn't make mistakes? Yeah, he made mistakes just as David did. But he understands that the real issue in life is going to be trusting in God. So when he's faced with this enemy at the gate, literally, he has already turned back to God, which is the what is what we'll get to in chapter 20, when he's been under divine discipline, the sin unto death, and he turns to God in prayer there. And then here he is going to go to God again in prayer, but prayer is the action plan that is a result of a previously set way of thinking. Because he is the one who, blessed is the man who trusts in God. He's the one who trusts in God, and because he's already made that decision, then his prayer is, this isn't an act of desperation here. He isn't moving into panic palace and deciding, oh, I need to pray now. I haven't prayed in a while. We got it. We tried everything else. Now I'm going to pray. No, he now is the situation. It is extreme, but he's not in a panic mode. And he goes into the house of the Lord. He understands exactly what the dimensions are. It's not a matter of military tactics. It's not a matter of technology. It's not a matter of being in the right political party, being in control of of uh, whatever's governing the country. It is an ultimate matter of being humble under the authority of God. And he's there personally, and now he, as the leader of the people, is going to express that in a remarkable way in his prayer. And what we see here is that there's a prayer that's unstated here, but we see the answer to it in verse um, verse 5 or verse 6 from Isaiah. Then there's a second prayer later on, and we see the priority of prayer. Prayer really does change things. That's that first-level box I put up there. That's where we put our hope, our confidence. That's where we put our trust is in God and in prayer and that needs to move up our scale of priorities from about 15 or 20 to number one, both personally and corporately as a church. And we'll get into lessons about prayer and see that as we get into this chapter. Now, what I've done is set this up for you. It's a way of thinking that starts with how you think about God. Is God a very real help in time of trouble, or is God just an abstract concept floating out there, or is God not even that? And depending on how you answer that question, everything else falls. But then you have to think about it, and, you know, we really don't like to do that as Americans anymore, so we just want to be warm, be filled, and have some feel-good music. So since we don't have that, let's close in prayer with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you that we have you to come to, that you are the sovereign God of the universe and that you, uh, you rule and govern in the affairs of men. Nevertheless, we know that your sovereignty does not override individual responsibility and individual action, and that we need to be involved individually in terms of our own decisions related to our relationship to you and our dependence upon you as the ultimate, as the ultimate source of strength and happiness, as the ultimate source of security, and the ultimate source of meaning in life. Father, we recognize that we live in a world where as Christians, we are constantly being bombarded by uh, pagan ideas. We are in a spiritual warfare, and we need to be taking every thought captive for Christ. And that begins by studying your word, and we have to be dependent upon that, and we have to 
be serious about our study of your word, and we have to make that uh, one of the highest priorities in our life in terms of our relationship to you. But it all begins with an understanding of what you've done for us in solving the basic problem, which is sin. That Christ died on the cross for our sins, that by believing in him we might have eternal life. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. If you're here and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, this is your opportunity to do so. This is what makes the difference between life and death. In Christ there is life. Outside of Christ there is no life. In Christ there is truth. Outside of Christ there is no truth. In Christ there is uh, happiness and peace. Outside of Christ there is no happiness, no peace. This is your opportunity to trust in him. And by believing in him we have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with what we've studied, that you will, uh, as we think about these things throughout the week, that uh, we'll come to understand how they should shape our own thinking and our own actions. And, Father, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would make this very real to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.